I'm going to share with you a message that I've titled, Living with Lasting Joy. Living with Lasting Joy. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10, picking up where we left off last week as we've been on this long-term study through the gospel of Luke, looking at the life of Jesus, looking at all that he has to teach us, and we'll be picking up in verse 17 today. But just can you imagine, can, can you imagine that first Palm Sunday? Can you imagine being there among the throng on that first day of this first holy week as Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem? Can you imagine seeing all those palm branches waving through the air and all of those people as their palm branches are waving high, exalting the Savior, saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What a happy celebration that must have been. But as the video we've just watched depicts, that the celebration for these folks would not last. They had joy, but only for a moment. Because they'd experienced some wonderful things. They had seen some wonderful things. But most of them were still missing the point. They expected this immediate earthly king. They expected an immediate release from the oppressive Roman government. When Jesus came to set up something that was beyond their imagination as the giver of eternal life. And so people rejoiced. They had great joy, but not for long. This was not lasting joy. When they saw that their religious heroes didn't approve of Jesus, they quickly let their joy be dwindled away. And soon, many in that same crowd who were crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, were crying out, crucify, crucify. And we've seen the same pattern of dwindling joy Echoing throughout the halls of history, individuals get excited about a leader or a movement or a time of prosperity only to have their hopes dashed as it all comes crashing down. There may be joy for a season, but it is not a lasting joy. What once brought joy in these situations so often disintegrates into disappointment and depression. And what we truly long for what we truly need is a joy that lasts. We need a joy that perseveres beyond circumstances. We need a joy that is not bound up in our jobs or in our bank accounts or in our relationships with other broken people or in our good health or in our own personal strength. We need a joy that will not fail us. And that's the sort of joy that Jesus came to bring. In fact, that's the joy that saturates our passage for this morning. Do you long, my friends, for lasting joy? Well, today Jesus is going to show us where it can be found. We're in a series through the Gospel of Luke that I've summarized with the title, Outcasts. Because Luke is ultimately a gospel for the rejected. Over and over again, we find Jesus reaching out to the nobodies of society. Those who are lame, those who are blind, those who are tax collectors, despised, rejected, oppressed, outcasts. And as he reaches out to them, he shows them 
that though they may be nobodies in everybody else's eyes, they are not nobodies in the eyes of the God who made them. So last week, as we entered into Luke 10, we found Jesus sending out 70 otherwise unknown individuals. We don't have their names recorded. There is no long register. These were not the elites of Judaism. These were not the elites of Jerusalem or of Israel. In fact, they were those who had chosen to refuse an elite status for themselves. Jesus told them that he was sending them out as lambs among wolves. And we talked last week about how none of us wants to buy into that mission trip brochure. He ordered them to take nothing with them as they went out. He ordered them to depend on him for everything. And these disciples were not part of the original 12 disciples that Jesus had called to follow him in a day-to-day, close-up, personal training sort of way. They were simply a group of nobodies who had chosen to yield themselves in service to the Messiah who worked great miracles. And unlike those who were tested and who did not pursue Christ in those final verses of chapter 9 that we looked at a couple of weeks back, these nobodies had given Christ first place in their lives. They saw the urgency of conveying gospel truths, even if there was no guarantee that they would find a place as they did so to lay their heads. They were compelled to act immediately rather than waiting for a more convenient time, like when family obligations had been fulfilled, as we saw one wavering on at the end of Luke 9. They saw the need to put their hands to the plow without looking back. In summary, they were willing to sacrifice much so that they might honor Christ. And yet in their sacrifice, they didn't find despair. I think so often we get the mentality that if I step out and do what Jesus is going to call me to do, life for me is going to be miserable. But what you're going to see in this passage today is that these individuals return, and as they return, they have great joy, lasting joy. These nobodies went out with the authority that was granted to them by Jesus and they returned to announce their results. And as they do so, we find them bearing great fruit and rejoicing in the results of their labors. And so friends, I just ask all of you who are here today, are you full of joy? I'm not asking if the circumstances of your life at this present time are are fortunate circumstances. I'm asking if you have a lasting peace and a gladness within that cannot be phased by the circumstances of your life because Jesus came to bring lasting joy. So let's join now together in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 17, and see how the disciples encountered that joy and how we too might experience lasting joy. I'd ask if you're able, if you would, to please stand as we honor the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 17. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. 
Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. This passage is just chock full of joy. In verse 17, the 70 return we read with joy. Jesus refines and redirects that joy into an even greater source of joy in verse 20 as he commands his disciples saying, Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Then we have the only recorded episode in all of the Bible where Jesus rejoiced greatly. It's translated in the New American Standard Bible which is what the Holy Spirit inspires him to do in verse 21 with a rejoicing that leads him to praise his heavenly Father. Then he turns to his disciples and he proclaims how the joy that they have in him is this joyful blessing that prophets and kings who had come before them longed to receive. So as you can see, this passage is just to the brim with this idea of joy. And every element of joy that is in this passage, is founded in something that endures beyond the circumstances of the moment. And so I ask you, do you want to live with lasting joy? Well, friends, God's word today shows us that you can live with lasting joy because Jesus has come. And today I want to share with you from this passage four ways to find lasting joy. The first is this. You'll find lasting joy when you understand that the demons are under Jesus' dominion. In verses 17 through 19, we see the return of these 70 nobodies that Jesus calls to this most important task of preparing the way for him into the cities where he himself would go. They'd been sent out for that very task as Jesus was showing this representation that he was going to all the nations. He had set about his mission plan. He had set his disciples in motion to carry out his work to save the world. They'd been sent out to prepare the way of the Lord as a reminder that Jesus is coming in this way. And Jesus had commanded them to heal the sick. But as they return, they're filled with joy because they found not only are they equipped to to heal the physical sick, By his power and through his authority, they're they're also given the authority over those who are sick with sin. They're given the authority over those who are bound up by evil forces, possessed by demonic forces, these fallen angels. 
Because the disciples proclaim here in verse 17, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. That is, they've been amazed at what Jesus has enabled them to do. Perhaps some of those disciples thought, you know, I'll go because Jesus tells me to go, but I doubt I can do much. I'm just a nobody trying to serve somebody. I, I doubt I'll be able to make much of a difference. That might have been on some of their hearts and minds. But they did indeed make a difference. And anyone who goes in Jesus' name should expect that he has the authority and power and can take the broken vessels that we are and do so much more than we could ever imagine for his kingdom's sake. So, so don't sell yourself short by refusing to go in his name and thereby deprive Jesus of the opportunity to work through you. There is power that is available to us that is greater than what we could imagine because that power is not our own power. We go not in our own strength. We go not in our own authority. We go in Jesus' name. It is the very power of the Lord who sends us. That's why the disciples say that demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus is the one who enables this work. And when the disciples make themselves available and they trust in his leading, they find joy in being able to be a part of his work and being able to see his power at work. That power ascended even above the demons. Demons are just fallen angels, we find in the Bible. But they have a chief, and their chief, Satan, is also God's chief adversary. In verse 18, Jesus responds to the disciples and their joy by by sharing with them something that he could see that they could not see through their own eyes. He says, I was watching Satan fall like lightning. That is, while these disciples were out doing what the Lord had commanded them to do, Jesus had a glimpse into what was happening in Satan's dominion. And what was happening was that Satan's army was falling. As the disciples were going out and encountering the demons and driving them out, it's like an army with a great general whose soldiers are all being defeated. Doesn't matter how strong that general may be, if all of his soldiers are taken out, then his power is weakened. What does it mean for Satan to fall like lightning, as Jesus says here? Well, some Bible scholars think that this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 14, which records Satan's initial fall from heaven, as in his pride he said, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. I will make myself like the most high. And ultimately, the result we find in Isaiah 14, 15 was that that Satan was cut down to earth and his condemnation was the final result. Isaiah 14, 15 says, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. There's this promise that this one who has fallen from on high, who is taking these demons with him, as we see in the scripture, will ultimately be defeated. So some people think that these words of Jesus here in Luke 10 are looking back to Satan's original fall from heaven. Others recount Jesus' great battle with Satan as he was tempted by the devil back in Luke chapter 4. Some of you may recall how we talked about that great battle of temptation where we saw 
God in the trenches. Jesus as the sinless one waging war after 40 days, 40 nights of no food, no water, as Satan came to tempt him. And with temptation, Jesus by saying, it is written. He won the victory by proclaiming the word. Well, after studying this for a little bit this week, I'm seeking to interpret scripture with scripture here. The Bible makes it very clear we now still need to be on the lookout for our adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. And that's very much an activity that Satan continues on in this day. So for Satan's fall here to indicate something other than the fact that he would still have some power is obviously not true if we're interpreting Scripture with Scripture. Uh, the Bible also tells us that in the book of Revelation that ultimately there is a final defeat that lies ahead for Satan. So if we see him as being ultimately defeated in any way that would not bring about this final judgment as he's cast into the lake of fire, then we are interpreting this passage incorrectly. Furthermore, the Bible informs us in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that through the death of Jesus... He has rendered the devil powerless in his power over death so that he might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So there is yet another piece of what Jesus will accomplish in these coming days as he goes to the cross through his death. He renders Satan's power over death to be naught. And ultimately, I believe what Jesus was referring to here was the nature of Satan's gradual fall. You see, Satan's defeat has been secured. Jesus has won the victory. But there's a not yet element to Jesus' full and final victory. Because for the present time, the devil, wounded and headed for his own demise, roams about trying to bring about the destruction of all that he can. But Jesus is coming again, my friends, and he will bring an ultimate defeat to the devil. In the meantime, Satan's defeat is is like lightning. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, or I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, Now, it's rare that you would see a storm that had just one bolt of lightning to shoot down from the sky. Usually when you see lightning... There is a storm that has many of these bolts of lightning that will be flashing about at various intervals. You see it in shocking displays, illuminating the night at regular intervals. But eventually, the storm passes on. Eventually, the lightning subsides. Eventually, it is over. What Jesus seems to be rejoicing in here is the fact that he's been observing the defeat of Satan's kingdom one soul at a time. As that one soul has been rescued through the evangelistic ministry of these disciples who served him with joy. Every soul, one to the Lord Jesus, another crack of lightning as Satan's power and his dominion comes crashing down as the storm passes through and this gradual tearing down of satan's kingdom will continue throughout the history of the church it continues even today 
And the holy angels, we know from Scripture, rejoice every time that one lost and damned soul is recovered from Satan's domain. There's so much to rejoice in when the saints of God get serious about the command of God and tear down Satan's strongholds by winning the lost to Christ. And for Jesus to have seen Satan fall from heaven means that the devil does not have the power to compete with his authority. God has already won the victory. Satan may linger on in his work on the earth, but his final defeat is certain. All that remains is the final battle and total victory, which will come about in God's timing. And so my fellow Christians, we have nothing to fear Our fear is replaced with lasting joy. Jesus uses an analogy to to drive this home. In verse 19, he says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And he says, And nothing will injure you. Now, it's, it's hard to imagine two creatures that are more scary to the average person than snakes and scorpions. And Jesus says that his people under his authority has power to tread on those two creatures. Now what are we supposed to do with that? Is this a call for us to go out and find some snakes and some scorpions so that we can walk on them? You can, but I won't be with you, okay? Snakes and scorpions are used in the Bible often in references to demonic forces. Satan is, of course, referred to as that great serpent of old. And, and there are locusts released from the abyss in the book of Revelation, and, and it says that they had the sting of scorpions. Furthermore, Jesus follows this statement up with the words, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. That is, the emphasis here is that the spirits are subject to Christ and to those who are functioning under his authority. What Jesus is saying here is is the element of, of what is bringing you so much joy is that the demons are under my dominion. Jesus is showing the demons are under his dominion. God's greatest enemy is under your feet when you go in his name. All the powers of the enemy are under Jesus's power. There is no force that could injure us that is not under our great God's control. There is no foe that he can't defeat. There is not a danger that he can't protect you from. There's not a germ that he can't shield you from. There's not a terrorist that he can't steer you away from. There's not a critic that he can't silence for you. If you go and encounter these things, know that they are under your feet because they are under his authority. So stop making excuses and find lasting joy because God has granted us the joyful privilege of being a part of Satan's downfall as we win others to Christ. I love what Paul writes in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. Listen to these words. Here's what Paul writes to the church. The God of peace will soon crush Satan Under your feet. Do you see that expectation? 
that God has designed for Satan's fall to come through his people, stomping all over Satan's territory. And my friends, Satan may win a few more battles just yet, but he has already lost the war. You'll find lasting joy when you understand that the demons are under Jesus' dominion. That's the first way you can find lasting joy. Here's the second. You'll find lasting joy when heaven has a record of your name. Now, if the disciples get too high on their ability to drive out demons, then this could lead them to pride, right? We can understand that sort of thing, like God's given me a gift, and I've used that gift, and I must be pretty special in God's eyes, right? Sometimes we get that sort of mentality. The fact that we have authority, though, is not a reason for pride. It's a reason for appreciation for the amazing grace that none of us deserves, though we have received it in abundant supply. So we must be careful that our joy in what Christ enables us to do does not become for us pride that considers ourselves as more worthy or especially worthy to do the task that he calls us to do. As the Bible says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so Jesus redirects the disciples' joy in verse 20. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. You see, Jesus gives a greater thing to rejoice in in that we are able to accomplish through what he has accomplished ultimately something so much greater than what we could accomplish in our own pursuits. And he speaks about how we should rejoice that our names are recorded in heaven. Now, what does it mean for your name to be recorded in heaven? Well, the Bible regularly speaks about a book that records the names of those who have been saved. It's it's often referred to as the Lamb's Book of Life. The Lamb, of course, is Jesus. He's the one who has died as the sacrificial lamb in our place as the substitute for mankind. And this book, this book of life, the Lamb's book of life, which records those who are destined for eternity with him, is found in several Bible passages. In, in addition to our passage today, Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, for example, references a book of remembrance of those whom the Lord will spare. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 3 about his fellow workers whose names he said are in the book of life. In Hebrews chapter 12, there's a reference to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That is, their names have been written in heaven. And in the book of Revelation, which gives us this foretaste of how God will act in the final days, we find even more references to this book that our God will open at the time when he carries out his great white throne judgment over the wicked that's the time when all of our deeds will be judged and that's where we see that two books are ultimately in play there's one book that records men's deeds by which they will be condemned and the other book is the book of life which is written about in revelation 2015 with the words if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire. But for those whose names are found in the book, there's a different outcome. Revelation 21 reveals that they are welcomed into God's holy city to dwell in his very 
presence in the absence of sickness and sorrow and pain and death forevermore. And so listen, my friends, having our names written in heaven is a far greater cause than even the ability to cast out demons or to see Satan fall like lightning. And so the goal of our lives ought to be to have our names written in that great book. How can you be sure your name is written in the book of life? Well, be sure that you are saved. Repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Once your name is written in that book of life, my friends, you can have confidence that it will never be erased. Revelation 3, 5 has Jesus revealing to us these words. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. You see, my friends, there is a joyful security for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. If your name is written there, it will not be erased. God isn't running an eraser factory in heaven. He doesn't make mistakes. If you've entrusted your life to Christ, your eternity is secure in God through him. And we can praise him for that. We do not need to be worried about losing our salvation. There was nothing we could do to earn it to start with. There's nothing we can do to lose it now. And this, my friends, is a reason for great rejoicing. As Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, for I am convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And with this command to rejoice in the fact that our names are written in heaven here in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Jesus shows us that our greatest joy should be in the simple fact that he has written our names there, more so than how victorious our ministry efforts have been. Because here's what happens. Ministry has its ups and downs, right? If, if our joy is only seated in the ups of ministry, if we're only joyful when we see the demons falling around us, we may fall away from Jesus when the downs come, when we, when we find that ministry's not going quite the way we thought that it would. And these disciples would ultimately face persecution. They would face rejection. They would face death many of them, as Jesus ascended to heaven. And so Jesus tells them, look, don't put all your hope in the ministry success. Put your hope in what endures beyond that as your names are written in this book of life. And so don't let the ups and downs of ministry Have you in this mindset that says God's favor is no longer with me? The rejection of our neighbors and our family members when we present the gospel cannot erase our names from heaven's scrolls. Salvation is by grace through faith in a sure and victorious Savior. And this gives us a steadfast joy that is not bound up in the circumstances of how 
we are doing. You can have lasting joy because a loving Savior extends to you amazing grace that invites you to trust in Him and have an eternal home in heaven that is free of sickness, sorrow, pain, and death. All those things that we experience here on earth. And my friends, I just want to warn you. Be careful not to sell yourselves short in your pursuit of joy. Be careful not to sell yourselves short in your pursuit of joy. Many a man or a woman has set his or her life on obtaining things which offer temporary joy. Things like wealth or fame or notoriety or leisure. These things will pass away. Don't waste your life chasing what will ultimately be laid in the dust. Christ offers you a heavenly home, an eternal home. What could take away this joy that Jesus offers to us? Nothing, nothing will take that joy away from those who are his own. But many of the joys before you could be taken away in an instant. If the greatest joy we seek is anything other than what God in Christ offers us, we ultimately will find it to be a disappointing joy. Because the joy of good life will end in death. The joy of beauty will surely fade with age. The joy of money will stop at the grave or when the job goes away or when the medical bills pile up. God is the only source of true and lasting joy. And so Jesus commands us to rejoice. The word in verse 10 here, translated rejoice, is in the present imperative tense and mood, which in the original Greek language conveys that Jesus was commanding for this to be a continual practice. These disciples were to make a habit of rejoicing in the steadfast security of their salvation. And so should we, my friends. Are you, oh brother, up against circumstances that threaten to steal your joy? Are you, oh sister, facing enemies that seek to bring you down? You are not a helpless victim. You have a choice. Choose joy. Rejoice in the incredible and unsnatchable truth that your name is recorded in heaven. And you'll find lasting joy when heaven has a record of your name. That's the second way you can find lasting joy. Here's the third. You'll find lasting joy when you know the Son of God. In verse 21, Jesus begins rejoicing himself. In fact, verse 21 is the only place in all of Scripture where we read that Jesus rejoiced greatly. That word translated rejoice greatly here, by the way, literally in the original Greek language means to jump much or to leap for joy the word describes a person who is happy enough to skip and to jump with excitement and joy you see jesus is really happy about what he's just seen happen what is it that jesus has just seen happen well he speaks about it in a word of prayer to his father that he offers up in the latter half of verse 21 it says at that very time he rejoiced greatly in the holy spirit which shows, by the way, all the members of the Trinity working together in concert. And he said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. 
Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. You see, Jesus is rejoicing that the infants of this world have come to understand the gospel. By that, he doesn't mean literal infants. He means those who are like infants, those who are helpless, those who cannot reason and ration on their own, those who realize that they ultimately need what Christ offers and not what they themselves can earn. And the infants in this passage that Jesus talks about have come to know the Son of God. You see, the miracle that stands above all miracles is the salvation of the lost soul. This is the miracle that brings Jesus joy. This is the miracle that causes him to rejoice greatly. And that's a miracle that ought to produce joy in each and every one of us who are part of his body as well. Do you have as your ambition... Helping individuals to know the Son of God. Well, that's what makes Jesus rejoice. And that's what brings lasting joy to an otherwise hopeless sinner as well. We read in verse 21 that God hides these truths from the wise and the intelligent. Now, wise and intelligent people tend to think they have things under control. They think they can capitalize on their perceived strengths of wisdom and intelligence to earn a right standing with God. And so they try to do enough to earn God's favor. They produce the artifacts of love without a relationship of love. And friends, that's the wrong equation. Producing the artifacts of love apart from the context of a relationship of love. God doesn't want your artifacts of love without your relationship of love. He wants you to know the Son of God. Doing the deeds apart from knowing him is just a waste of time. Let let me draw that out by a very personal sort of illustration, all right? When I was in high school, I played a couple of sports and I was a decent student. But let's just say that I was an awkward guy when it came to the ladies, all right? When the time came around for my junior prom, I had never really dated. Well, I really wanted to attend the prom, but I didn't want to go alone So I asked a girl that was in one of my classes uh, that did not have a date. I knew she didn't have a date. And so I asked her if she would be willing to go to the prom with me. And she consented to go with me. And then I got this really awkward idea that shows just how clueless I was about dating after that. Because the thought occurred to me, you should send this girl a dozen roses. And then... You know, my mind was like, you know, that's what people who go on a date do. And and it gets worse than that because along with these roses, I wrote a poem. And it was a poem about love. And as my adult self, looking back on my teenage self then, my strongest thoughts right now are, what planet did you come from? Because here was this girl who only vaguely knew me from whatever class we had shared together. And I was coming to take her out on our first date. And before I got there, I had already sent her a dozen red roses and written in poetry of my love for her. I can only imagine how awkward that delivery to her home must have been as her parents gathered around and said, oh, you got flowers. Huh, a dozen red roses. And what's that, a poem? 
oh, it's a love poem. Is this something you're not telling us? Well, when I arrived to pick up this poor girl to go to dinner before the prom, she took me aside and essentially said, I'm sorry, but you're out of bounds and you're weird. I don't think she used those exact words, but the message came through, okay? She should have used those words because I was weird. That girl barely knew me. She didn't want my flowers or my love poem. And here's the lesson that I learned from one of the most awkward prom experiences ever. The artifacts of love are repulsive when there is no established relationship of love. But you know what? I spent much of my life in the realm of faith living in the very same way. In my relationship with God, I thought that I would earn a glad reception from him by simply producing the artifacts of love, even though I did not have a relationship of love with him. I knew of Jesus, but I was not in a relationship with Jesus. I had been to church for a good bit of my life. I'd had classes with Jesus, but I had not yielded my life to him as Savior and Lord. I was living for myself apart from him. I knew about him, but I was not relying on him for my eternal destiny. You see, I thought at the time that I was good enough to get to heaven. I thought that I was wise and intelligent enough to do the right things to make God happy. I said, I know what I'll do. I'll do the Christian things. I'll go to church. I'll love God. I'll be nice to people, and I won't get arrested, and I'll try not to hurt anybody. Surely God will bless me for that. And you know what I was doing? I was doing what the crowd here in Luke 10, 21 was doing. I considered myself wise and intelligent. I knew, at least I thought in my mind, that I knew what it took to earn a glad reception with God. I thought, I'll just produce the artifacts and then he'll receive me. But by his grace, my friends, one day he revealed to me that the artifacts of love are repulsive when there is no relationship of love. All of my good deeds were as filthy rags before him. I was sending love letters to one that I didn't have a relationship with. And I came to realize that if I wanted to be received by God, I had to establish a relationship with him. I had to come to him on his terms. I had to yield my life to him. I had to realize that I was hopeless and poor and destitute and blind apart from him. I had nothing more than an infant would have to offer in my own lost state. If I was going to be saved, it had to be holy of his grace. And friends, you should know this. He is full of grace. He richly and freely extends to you his grace. He invites you through his grace to know him, to have a relationship with him. Don't go producing the artifacts without the relationship. Come to Christ. Find forgiveness. Find life. Find something that will produce for you lasting joy. Some people get caught up in the words of Jesus in verse 21, that God has hidden these things from the wise and intelligent 
and that only those whom the Son chooses to reveal himself to have the opportunity to know him in verse 22. But here's the reality. For Jesus to reveal himself to anyone is an act of unfathomable grace. We already all stand condemned. God's wrath is already against all who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And all includes you. It includes me as we find in Romans 1. But God is rich in his grace. God offers us an alternative. The authority of the Father is placed in the Son. In turn, it is the Son who reveals the Father to others. If you're going to come to God, you must come through the Son. As Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And yet, the Father allows us to come to Him and find peace with Him through the Son. That's the peace that this Holy Week offers. That's the peace of the cross. That's the peace of the empty tomb. That's the peace that is extended freely to whosoever will come and entrust his or her life to Christ. And so I ask you, my friends, is he your Lord? Do you know him? Or are you just producing the artifacts of love, hoping that you'll find a good reception? Know this, you'll find lasting joy When you know the Son of God. That's the third way you can find lasting joy. Here's the final way. You'll find lasting joy when you see that Jesus is the hero of history. In verses 23 and 24, Jesus shows just what a privilege it is to know him. He essentially lays down another beatitude by saying to his disciples, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see and did not see them. And to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. That is the historical people of God. The ones that God used in the past. They had a desperate longing. They longed to see how God would work out this great plan of redemption for all of mankind. They long to see and to behold the hero of history. They long to hear the specifics of the gospel. They longed to behold Jesus. And here were the disciples. They'd been granted that opportunity. And so have we. The gospel is so clearly revealed to us. The prophets would be envious of you. Kings of old would be envious of you to know, my friends, what we have so freely revealed to us by our God in His holy word. And so what will you do with that truth? Jesus has died in your place. What will you do with this privilege? The gospel has come to clarify your misperceptions to bring clarity to your ears jesus has died in your place the just for the unjust will you forge ahead by your own power pursuing a fatal joy or will you turn from your sins turn to his grace and find lasting joy in him and friend i say give your life to jesus let your life and your joys be wrapped up in him And I can promise you, you will find lasting joy. 
Yes, the sickness may come. Yes, the bank account may still go red. Yes, others may still mock you and scorn you. But you'll have lasting joy. And I'll tell you this, my friends. I would rather trade places if I were a billionaire with a mansion with a cancer patient who is on his deathbed in Christ than to be apart from him in those circumstances. Because my friends, only Jesus offers lasting joy. The hero of history has come. Come to him. Trust him. Find lasting joy. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that you offer to us something more than what we so often find ourselves pursuing now. Something so much more than what we find ourselves disappointed in now. And God, if we're honest, we need to confess to you now that we are not experiencing lasting joy because we've wrapped up all of our hopes in the wrong things. And so, Father, I just pray that through the power of your word here today, through your revelation to us, you would redirect our joy. You would cause us, O oh Lord, to seat our joy in something greater than the things which will be passing away soon. And God, we bring our thanks. We bring our gratitude. God, help us to, to understand, to acknowledge that there is something so much greater than these things that you extend to us through Christ. Help us, O oh Lord, to see the beauty of lasting joy that you offer to us, to have our names recorded in heaven, to be on mission for you, to be in the center of your will. O oh Lord, let us pursue these things and let us be a people known for lasting joy and father there may be some who are gathered here today who long for this lasting joy who realize that they've just been going about things the wrong way they've been producing the artifacts of love without the relationship of love god i just pray that you'd reach into their lives with the same grace you reached into mine using and that you would draw them to yourself O oh lord father i pray you'd let that individual here now who realize that they have been producing the artifacts without having the relationship. I pray you to let them know that you've paid every price. You've broken down every barrier. You've, you've met every requirement through Christ who has come. And I pray that in light of that, you would draw them, O oh Lord, to a true peace, to a true relationship, to one where they can acknowledge you, O oh Lord as the giver of this gift. So, Father, as we gather in these final moments, whatever the need may be, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, I pray you would draw individuals into lasting joy in these moments. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to close with a final time of invitation as we sing.